Hello and welcome. These are some sermons given by Monsignor Rosito from the years 1995 to the year 2016. Enjoy. Today is the 11th Sunday after Pentecost and the epistle is taken from St. Paul's first letter to the Corinthians. Brethren, I recall to your minds the gospel that I preached to you, which also you received, wherein also you stand, and through which also you are being saved, if you hold it fast, as I preached it to you, unless you have believed to no purpose. For I delivered to you first of all what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day according to the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, and after that to the eleven. Then he was seen by more than five hundred brethren at one time many of whom are still with us, but some have fallen asleep. After that, he was seen by James, then by all the apostles. And last of all, as one born out of due time, he was seen also by me, for I am the least of the apostles, and am not worthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God I am what I am, and his grace in me has not been fruitless. And the Holy Gospel is taken from the Gospel according to St. Mark. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen. At that time, Jesus, departing from the district of Tyre, came by way of Sidon to the Sea of Galilee, through the midst of the district of Decapolis. And they brought to him one deaf and dumb, and entreated him to lay his hands upon him. And taking him aside from the crowd, he put his fingers into the man's ears, and spitting, he touched his tongue. And looking up to heaven, he sighed and said to him, Ephetha, that is, be thou opened. And his ears were at once opened, and the bond of his tongue was loosed, and he began to speak correctly. And he charged them to tell no one. But the more he charged them, so much the more did they continue to publish it. And so much the more did they wonder, saying, He has done all things well. He has made both the deaf to hear and the dumb to speak. So far are the words of this day's Holy Gospel. But by the grace of God I am what I am, and his grace in me has not been fruitless. Words taken from the epistle of today's Holy Mass. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen. My dear friends in Christ, he calls himself the servant of the servants of God, but he is in reality a king, that is, the Pope, the vicar of Christ on earth. Before Pontius Pilate, Christ did say, Thou hast rightly said, I am a king, for this was I born, to bear witness to the truth. And my followers hear my voice. There is an aristocracy in the Catholic Church that heralds back to the Middle Ages. Since the Church is not only a spiritual society, it is also a visible society made up of human beings with protocols and with procedures that have deep roots in history. Now, we know, studying history at any point in any area, 
we find that there have always been leaders and there have always been followers. And the leaders are not just uh, anybody, but usually those who are most qualified. Common sense, the ability to see not only what's good, but what is better, chooses the better among those in a society to be to the instructors, the teachers, because they know, and the leaders because they're capable. And so it's not a democratic uh, scramble of majority opinion, but rather an enlightenment of those who see well to choose the better leaders to guide the group in society. In the Middle Ages, there was what we call the feudal system. I'd like to take you back, since we're going to be studying the protocols, the hierarchy of the Catholic Church today, it may be a little bit boring in a way, but on the other hand, is a deep insight to be gathered by understanding the nature of the social structure of the church among the hierarchy, those who are leaders in the church. Let's go back to medieval society very briefly. Society in much of medieval Europe, that is the Middle Ages, about the years 1200 to 1500, 1400, Society in much of medieval Europe was organized into a feudal system which was based on the allocation of land in return for services. So a rich man had much land and uh, there were less capable or qualified people who worked for the king, the feudal lord, and he gave them the use of the land. You know, this is what we need to survive. Out of the earth comes all of our wealth, our food, our materials. And so who owns the earth is the one who provides the benefits for mankind that applies its work to bringing out these fruits of the earth for the welfare of society in general. So farmers are very important. They are the ones who provide our food for us. They use the land that God makes fruitful and with their knowledge, their talent, their abilities, they farm this land to produce for us the food that we need. Now, we don't think too much of food because you go to the grocery store and it's all there stacked neatly in piles or in refrigerated units, and you pick out what you want and go home and eat without thinking much about it. But if there's a blackout and the electricity um, no longer operates and the food goes bad in the refrigerated units and everybody buys up what's left on the shelves, what have you got? You've got a stark realization that you're very poor indeed if you don't have the use and the operation of the land to produce what you need day by day, that you take so much for granted. So in feudal Europe, there were not the cities that we're acquainted with now. There's not the there weren't the telephones or the electricity. They lived a very um, rural life. They uh, rose with the sun, they went down, they went to bed with the setting of the sun, and that was a very limited experience to a degree, but they were oriented to the appreciation of what the land did for them and what they had to do in serving the land by working in the fields. And so the king had the right to these lands and he shared it with the laborers who worked the fields for the king and for society in general. So this feudal system was a cooperation between the lords and the peasants, and everybody benefited when they worked together under God. And that was the, what the Middle Ages provided, a setting of religion and an orientation 
that everybody served under God and there was no higher or lower in the sense that one was spiritually better because of his political condition, but they were all equal, but they had different kinds of work, and so they pursued these obligations in an exchange that was charitable. That was the idea. It always worked that way, nor does uh, government work today ideally either. The king gave fiefs or grants of land, that word F-I-E-F is the uh, spelling for fief or a grant of land to his most important noblemen, who were the barons and bishops. And in return, each noble promised to supply the king with soldiers in time of war. There's a lot of warfare that went on in the Middle Ages, as goes on even in modern times. A noble pledged himself to be the king's vassal or servant at a special ceremony. Kneeling before the king, he swore an oath of loyalty with the words, Sire, I become your man. Now, we sometimes use that as a uh, means of bonding someone to you uh, in an intimidation or at the price of uh, some value that the man wants, and so he serves. So you employ somebody to fix your refrigerator, he comes in, does the service, you pay him, and he goes his way. But he's your man to do the work you cannot do for yourself, usually. The great lords or nobles often divided their lands among lower lords or knights, K-N-I-G-H-T, who in turn became their vassals. In this way, feudalism stretched from the top to the bottom of society. In the very bottom were the peasants who worked the land itself. They had few rights little property, and no vassals. So they were the bottom of the pile, but they were the ones who actually produced the wealth that trickled up through the society or social structure to those who were the nobles and the kings. Now I'd like to take you through each of these real quickly. The peasants. The peasants were at the bottom of the feudal tree. They were the workers who farmed the land to provide food for everyone else. Most peasants worked for a lord who let them farm a piece of land for themselves in return for their labor. So they shared land, some of the produce going to the lord and some remaining to the family. Sometimes farmers are looked upon as peasants and they're not. The lords. Lords ruled over fiefs or manors, that is households areas, renting out most of their land to the peasants who worked for them. They were the, also the warriors of medieval society, so the lords had to be able to provide their weapons and to be knowledgeable in the art of warfare. As trained knights, they were bound by oath to serve the great nobles who granted them their fiefs, and they could be called to battle at any time. So they were the soldiers. The barons were the most powerful and wealthy noblemen and received their fiefs directly from the king. When William of Normandy uh, conquered England in 1066, a very important date, um, he had about 120 barons. These were, you might say, the elite of the noble nobility. 
Each provided him with a possible army of over, over 5,000 men. So that's how he was able to invade England and win the battle at Hastings. Now the bishops. Bishops often wielded as much power as the barons. We must remember in the Dark Ages there was no real leadership because the barbarians had overrun Europe and destroyed the Roman Empire and the only stable society was the church and so the Pope was a material leader as well as a spiritual leader until these barbarians settled down and became organized societies and nations and then had their own kings whom uh, the Pope, one of whom the Pope crowned as Charlemagne, king of the Holy Roman Empire. And so there was a division, church and state, both under God but working together. The Pope for the church, the king for the nation, the community of nations called the Holy Roman Empire. But the bishops had the knowledge, they had the learning, they had the um, position, and they had the power, often equal to the barons, as it says here. And they ruled over areas called dioceses. Now, the church is divided into territories throughout the whole world. Even if there are no Catholics there, the church still identifies that territory as a missionary area that one day will have a bishop if the missionary work is carried out successfully. This is the diocese and all the priests and monasteries uh, within them were under the bishop, the local bishop. The regular collection of tithes and other taxes from their dioceses made many bishops extremely wealthy. Now it wasn't that they were to use this wealth for themselves but to benefit the members of the church in their diocese charitable works, orphanages, um, institutions which provided some social service to the needs of the individual people. And the bishop at that time, if he was wealthy, sometimes they were poor, that he could actually operate such as charitable institutions because of the generosity of those who were his members in the church. And finally the king. Few kings had enough wealth to keep a standing army and depended on their barons to provide knights and soldiers. But kings had to work hard to keep their barons under control. You know, the more money you have, the more power you have, and therefore the more freedom you seek. And there is this tension and sometimes civil war that goes on uh, in any organization or, or kingdom. In many cases, especially in France and Germany, the great barons grew very powerful and governed their fiefs thieves as independent states. And that was the background of the Protestant Reformation when these barons wanted to take away from the king, the emperor, or separate themselves from them so they could become their own feudal lords, uh, separate and independent. This is medieval society. And so against that background, we see that the church is really a kingdom. Our Lord called it a kingdom, the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven, but not of this world and we must keep this in mind there is a spiritual kingdom and a temporal kingdom we call one the city of man the temporal kingdom and the other the city of God the spiritual kingdom but we belong to both and as long as we're oriented to God in the service in the temporal kingdom it too belongs to God and serves God with charity and all the Catholic virtues that give it a spiritual life when it's disoriented separated from God and tends to serve man 
for man's sake, humanity's sake. Then we have what we call secular humanism. It's a horizontal thing, not vertical to God, but horizontal to man, where man becomes God, or man becomes the measure of all things, private conscience. We see that working in the democratic status. Not that democracy is intrinsically evil, but it is most apt to go away from God because it serves man of the people, by the people, for the people, as Abraham Lincoln put it, and that this nation was conceived and dedicated and to see whether or not it would continue with the best ideals. We see that it is subject to all the human erosion and tensions and uh, struggles of power because of wealth among the industrial na uh, corporations that become more and more wealthy and exploit more and more those who produce the wealth but are the poor ones at the bottom of the pile. So we see society structured both in this world and civil governments. We see it in the spiritual world, in the church which can be tempted to seek the human operations in society by becoming horizontal or democratic. And we see a danger, therefore, of the Pope being pulled down from his kingship to becoming a president that can be elected by the majority or ruled like with a parliament as the king or queen in England has a ruling uh, body of people that could be the cardinals or the bishops of the world if they want to push their collegiality to a point of displacing the Pope as the supreme leader. This is a danger that we face today. Now what is this hierarchy in chapter 60 on page 128 in your books? Who are the members of the hierarchy? H-R-E-R-A-R-C-H-Y. You hear about the hierarchy. Who are they? Well, I'm part of the hierarchy. Not a very big part, of, uh, uh, as you can recognize, but uh, who are the hierarchy? The members of the hierarchy, or the ruling powers of the church, are the Pope, Supreme Pontiff, Supreme Priest, uh, Cardinals, who are below the Pope. Patriarchs, remember we said there were five patriarchs, Rome being supreme, then Constantinople, Alexandria, Antioch, and Jerusalem. Archbishops, bishops, prelates, or abbots, nullius, apostolic administrators, vicars apostolic, prefects apostolic, and ecclesiastical superiors of missions sui juris. Now, there's some Latin thrown in there. But these are the official titles of the various grades of those who exercise power in the Catholic Church, both temporal, in a sense, physical power, as well as spiritual power. Now, the hierarchy is the orderly disposition of the ranks and orders of the clergy with ordinary jurisdiction, the teaching church, the ruling body, an army of leaders under its head, the vicar of Christ, having care and control of the holy and sacred things of the church. Now, that's a pretty lengthy description of the hierarchy as an orderly disposition of all these ranks, one 
subordinated to the other, but all under the Holy Father is the King, in the name of Christ, ruling the sacred holy things of the church. So it's not governmental in the civic sense, for the material well-being of its society, but for the spiritual well-being of its society. And in that primary way also uh, is the holy disposition of these orders ranked with these various names and uh, responsibilities, therefore. Now, persons becoming members of the hierarchy uh, are of two different ways of um, becoming members. By the power of orders, O-R-D-E-R-S. Now, what does that mean? Some command? No, it's the powers given by a sacramental system and by the power of jurisdiction. So I have received holy orders. You've heard of the priesthood called holy orders. Uh, this gives a certain amount of um, membership in the hierarchy. And then there's a second power called power or order of jurisdiction. The power of orders is given by the sacrament of holy orders or the priesthood. It is the power to sanctify permanent spiritual power that no earthly authority can take away. Anyone who tries to buy this is guilty of simony, trying to purchase something supernatural with a material wealth. And that's a serious sin. This spiritual power is given in the sacrament of holy orders and is permanent to sanctify others through the sacraments and holy mass. The power of jurisdiction, the power of authority, is given by a superior to enable a subject to exercise his spiritual authority lawfully, legally. The power may be limited and revoked by legitimate authority, but there has to be good reason for doing so. And sometimes arbitrariness enters in and becomes sort of a tyranny. But to be careful with power not to abuse it then it becomes a negative thing. It destroys instead of produces. How do the members of the hierarchy differ in their power of orders, that is, through their sacrament of the priesthood? The members of the hierarchy are divided into three classes with different power of orders. There are deacons, there are priests, and there are bishops. Now, they are made so by a sacrament that's given to them that make them what they are by the power of holy orders. The order of rank and power has been in force in the church from the time of the apostles. These three classes were foreshadowed in the high priest, priests, and Levites of the old law. We see the same sort of gradations or levels in the Old Testament and they were carried over into the Catholic Church in the New Testament in the time of the Apostles. They also had counterparts in our Lord, the Apostles and the Disciples. We hear the 72 Disciples, who they were, we don't know. But they were a group different from the Apostles, which were 12, under our Lord. Our Lord gave full powers to the 12 Apostles, but only limited power to the Disciples. Now, deacons. What, who are deacons? You hear of um, deacons uh, being uh, deputed. Well, they've always been among the um, orders of the church from the Middle Ages, certainly. Deacons can baptize, 
can preach and give Holy Communion. The apostles ordained the first deacons. And they usually did these, the, these, the corporal works of mercy. They distributed the food to the poor. The apostles were busy doing other things, baptizing, preaching, uh, on missionary journeys. And so the deacons carried out the um, ministerial works of charity for the poor, or the needy, uh, those who needed uh, immediate attention in little areas, families, little groups, individuals. Now, priests have higher orders than deacons. They can offer the holy sacrifice of the Mass. No deacon can offer Mass. A priest, though, a priest forever uh, offers Mass because that's what he's deputed to, to offer the holy sacrifice. That's his main work, to forgive sins, to take away sins. No deacon can do that. Why can a priest do it? Because he is given this authority and power by Christ through the bishops to the individual priest to forgive in the name of Christ. Not in the priest's name, not for the priest's personal benefit, but for the welfare of the church to forgive, take away sins, which is the work of Christ, to take away sins, to take away darkness and ignorance, to bring people to virtue, to faith and hope and charity, to the sonship of God, and to live the supernatural life. This is the work of the priest, to bring us about through the Mass, the sacraments, by preaching, by scolding if necessary, by encouraging, where possible, to lead people to help themselves save their souls. No priest can do it for another person, but he can help that person do it for himself by assisting them. And sometimes he does, because he takes away the sins when they are disposed properly and confessed validly, and their forgiveness is assured. Their sins are taken away. When he baptizes a baby, the baby is helpless. The mother and father can do it, but it's the priest who is the minister of the sacrament and gives life, new life, born again of the power of God and the grace of uh, the kingdom of God, sanctifying grace. And uh, each one of you has that power. By the fact that you know what baptism is, to take away original sin, and by use of the words, by the water that you pour, and the intention you had to do what Christ did, I baptize you in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost. These words give sanctification to a soul that is in original sin without the grace of God that now is displaced by the presence of that grace. Very powerful. But it's the priest's work to do so solemnly in solemn baptism uh, uh, with proper preparation. And to forgive sins in the sacrament of penance. They can administer all sacraments except those of confirmation and holy orders. So the priest is limited in the use of these sacraments that are given to him to perform by holy orders except for confirmation and to ordain another priest. That's limited. He cannot do that. Only a bishop can do that. Priests with special faculties, special permissions by the bishop, may administer confirmation. In the Catholic Eastern Rites, we talked about them last Sunday, priests administer confirmation immediately after baptism. So a little child is baptized and confirmed, and then often given Holy Communion under both um, species in the Eastern Church. But in the Western Church, we delay confirmation till later. Priests were pre uh, prefigured in the 72 disciples of our Lord. The word priest is divided from the Greek word 
presbyter, which means the elder, a term used for the first, uh, by the first converted Jews. A priest is addressed as father. Protestants don't like to call a priest father because they say, well, it says in scripture, call no man father. Then I ask, well, who do you call your dad? It's in a spiritual sense not to displace God the Father in heaven but to be under God because St. Paul says in Christ I have begotten you what does a father do but beget life and so he is a spiritual father bishops have full power of workers they are the successors of the apostles our Lord didn't um, uh, ordain priests he consecrated bishops and the twelve apostles and they consecrated the bishops but then these bishops can choose among the faithful those to be assistants to them called priests and deacons. But priests have greater power, but less than the bishops themselves. A bishop administers all the sacraments. He alone administers holy orders. The question, can a priest, if given permission, ordain another priest? It's never been done, and it's a technical question, but it's never been um, uh, defined. A bishop uh, consecrates holy oils, churches, chalices, and so on. Many things only a bishop can do, or he can delegate to a priest with his proper um, permission to do these in place of the bishop. Archbishops, primates, patriarchs, and even the pope himself have no further power of orders than a bishop of the missionary diocese, the humblest bishop has the same power the Pope has in the sense that he is a bishop equal with the Pope as the apostles were all equally apostles but only Peter had the supreme jurisdiction among them but he too was just a bishop. How do the members of the hierarchy differ in the power of jurisdiction? Not orders now but jurisdiction, the uh, administration of authority. The members of the hierarchy differ in the power of jurisdiction according to the extension and importance of the territory or office given to them. Territory, an area of land on earth, or an office, a particular function in the church to perform. In organization, the church is like a vast army. The pope, its visible head, is commander-in-chief of this army. We might say he's the king. He has jurisdiction and supreme and sovereign power and authority over the entire church. Uh, the President of the United States is supreme commander of the uh, American uh, military forces. But he is displaced every four years or re-elected, but uh, he is not inherently um, deputed to this by the fact that uh, he is in, in, entrenched in this office uh, for the rest of his life. The Pope is addressed, Your Holiness. So if you go to Rome and you should have occasion to have an audience, you would call the Pope Your Holiness, not uh, Father or uh, Your Excellency, but by that particular title. That's courtesy and his protocol. Cardinals appointed by the Pope are his principal advisors and assistants in the government of the Church. We talked about the Roman Curia last time and the various offices that many of you did not even know existed, but they are operated generally by the cardinals or their underlings who assist the cardinals in their particular offices. 
Till December 1959, they were limited to 70, only 70 cardinals. At present, there is no limitation to their number, and it has been expanded. And so these are rules the church can make. The Holy Father can change the number, he can reduce them, he can expand them. He has authority to do so. But he cannot touch the Ten Commandments, he cannot touch the doctrines of the church. He is to preserve them and to um, promulgate them, to teach them. But he has authority to make other rules and regulations that we are bound by because he is the representative of Christ in his jurisdiction. Together, they form, that is the Pope and are the Cardinals, uh, the Apostolic or Sacred College of Cardinals. Now, all the Cardinals together form a group called the College of Cardinals, the Senate of the Church. Assemblies of Cardinals presided over by the Pope are called consistories. Pope calls a consistory means he's gathering all the cardinals together for a meeting. The College of Cardinals in solemn conclave, not consistory, conclave, uh, elect a new pope when the sea falls vacant. When the pope dies, the cardinals get together in a conclave. They're sequestered or they're shut in the Vatican to vote until a majority plus one, uh, two-thirds plus one, uh, elects the new candidate from among the cardinals usually, although we'll see in a minute that it goes beyond that if, um, if so chosen. Uh, then this new so-called uh, elected cardinal becomes the next pope if he accepts the office. If he refuses it, he's not the pope. Some of the cardinals stationed in Rome are heads of the various congregations and offices of the Roman Curia. While nearly all residing outside of Rome are patriarchs and archbishops of important dioceses the world over. Uh, cardinal Mahoney is in the Archdiocese of Los Angeles. He's a cardinal, but he does not reside in Rome. The cardinal is addressed your eminence. So you don't call him your excellency, you call him your eminence if he's a cardinal. A patriarch is a bishop who holds the highest rank after the pope in jurisdiction. So the Eastern Church, Eastern Orthodox, not in union with Rome, has a patriarch for their head, but he's not considered infallible. And they don't accept the Pope, so they have a sort of a loose group of uh, leaders that uh, they accept and follow as their patriarch. An archbishop is the head of an archdiocese. A bishop is the head of a diocese. An abbot or Prelate Nullius is the head of an abbacy or prelature separated from any diocese. So the secular priests are under a bishop, religious priests are under a superior, a religious superior. I belong to the Diocese of Fresno. A religious priest operating here may be under a superior who resides elsewhere with a larger territory of a number of states making up that jurisdiction of a religious nature, where they take the vows of poverty, chastity, and obedience, and are under the superior rather than the bishop. If they work in a diocese, they are under the superior, but also under the bishop in union with the superior, who negotiate things if there's a problem that arises to solve that particular problem. Who's in charge over this particular religious priest? An apostolic visitor from Rome is usually a temporary head of a vacant jurisdiction, a vicar apostolic, always a bishop, 
is head of a vicariate. Now, this, this means generally that there's an area where there are very few Catholics or no Catholics at all. But it's a territory, and usually a bishop who's not going to reside there has a office in Rome to perform, but he's considered the bishop of that vacant diocese, and he's given a special name. He's an uh, apostolic uh, visitor, or um, he is head of the vicariate. It's empty, but he's still in charge of it, though it's a, sort of a legal fiction. A prefect apostolic, not a bishop, of a prefecture, so a vicariate has a bishop, but who's not residing there, as head a um, prefecture is head, uh, headed by someone who's not a bishop, but still in charge of that particular territory. And an ecclesiastical superior of a mission sui juris, an independent, although small territory. Um, this is how it's divided down, very small territory. So uh, he's called um, an apostolic superior of a mission sui juris, of, of its own kind, in other words. Archbishops and bishops are entitled most reverend. Now this is protocol, you may not ever have occasion to come across this or use it, but at least know about it, and then you can put it where you wish in your memory. Your Excellency um, is also uh, addressed to the bishop or archbishop. Your Excellency. The other prelates, not bishops, are entitled right or very Reverend Monsignor or Father. Now there's a distinction between a very Reverend and a right Reverend. A very Reverend is attached to the Pope, so when he dies they lose their title. A right Reverend is a rank above them because when the Pope dies he still retains his title as Monsignor. One of the first acts of a new Pope is to reinstate all the very Reverend Monsignori in their titles and then he becomes uh, again attached to the new Pope. Legates, nuncios, internuncios, and apostolic delegates are representatives of the Holy Father. They go to different parts of the world, they go to different governments, they go to different countries, but they are representatives of the Fa Holy Father himself. Having ordinary or extraordinary jurisdiction from the Supreme Pontiff, they are members of the hierarchy. A legate, usually a cardinal, is sent for extraordinary occasions as to preside at a plenary council, an international Eucharistic Congress, or some special function. So Cardinal Pacelli, before he became Pope Pius XII, uh, was sent to Germany because of the ticklish situation politically there, and he was a representative of the Pope uh, in that uh, meeting. A nuncio is the highest diplomatic representation of the Pope, his ranking is equivalent to that of an ambassador extraordinary in uh, civil uh, governments. Today, nuncios are the deans of the diplomatic corps accredited to their respective nations. An internuncio is equivalent to a minister plenipotentiary. I frankly don't know what that is, but I'll just read it to you. An apostolic delegate is a papal representation, representative without diplomatic status. So we have in Washington, D.C., the apostolic delegation, where the apostolic delegate resides from Rome, and then he can be replaced by another apostolic delegate. Since our 
College, the Josephinum in Columbus, Ohio, was under the papacy directly. We were a pontifical institute in the United States. The apostolic delegate came from Washington, D.C. and ordained us as priests. So we were actually ordained by a representative of the Pope himself, uh, indirectly by the Pope. But uh, we um, wore the uh, cassock of the propaganda of the faith in Rome, red piping, red buttons, and red sash all through our major seminary. We looked like Monsignori, but this is because we were under the Pope and the apostolic delegate came and ordained us. So I was ordained by uh, Archbishop um, Amleto Giovanni Cicognani in 1953. These various papal representatives serve as intermediaries between the Holy See and the hierarchy of the country where they are stationed. In the United States there is an apostolic delegate. Besides the ordinary powers of jurisdiction, he has an apostolic delegate. Um, uh, the Holy See has delegated to him extraordinary powers. He he has diplomatic pouches, in other words, secret communication that cannot be violated by outside sources. He ranks first among all the archbishops and bishops of the country, with the exception of the cardinals. So he's very high uh, in rank in the United States. Titular archbishops and bishops are those who hold the title of a see that formerly existed. For example, the church was very strong uh, in the early days of the church in North Africa. When the Mohammedans came and destroyed the Catholic religion in that area, took it over and made it Muslim, these territories were vacant. It had formerly had bishops there, and these then are given titles to bishops who don't reside there, but still have uh, uh, legal status in regards to this, uh, this uh, vacant diocese. Titular archbishops and bishops are those who hold the title of a see that formerly existed. Usually they do not have but delegated jurisdiction uh, given to them, promoted to them. Auxiliary and coadjutor bishops are titular bishops appointed to assist a residential bishop. So um, Cardinal Mahoney, for example, was once a, a, an assistant bishop in this diocese. He was called an auxiliary bishop. Then he became a bishop of another diocese in his own right. Then he was moved to Los Angeles, became an archbishop, and then finally cardinal. The coadjutor is given the right of succession to the residential bishop. So there's a difference between a, a, a um, auxiliary bishop and a coadjutor uh, bishop, or an uh, yeah coadjutor bishop who has right to succeed that bishop when he dies. So we know if he's a coadjutor bishop, he will be the next bishop in that diocese. If he's an auxiliary bishop, he may be moved out uh, when ne necessary for him to fill a vacant place elsewhere. Pastors and priests, although they belong to the hierarchy and the power of orders, are not prelates in the strict sense of the term. For they have a very limited jurisdiction in the external form of ruling the church. So they're under the bishop. You might say they're extensions of the bishop. Honorary prelates, finally, are those with a title but without jurisdiction. They are given the honor of a distinction for their work and zeal in promoting the welfare of the church. 
The title of archbishop given to a bishop is called ad persona, to the person, to the individual. The titles of pretonitary apostolic, domestic prelate, and papal chamberlain are given to priests for the same reasons. The first two are entitled Right Reverend Monsignor and the last Very Reverend Monsignor. So this is the status of the hierarchy of the church, but I want to tell you that this is on this earth in the kingdom of God that is yet to be sorted out from the goats and the sheep at the last judgment. So not everybody who is honored, entitled, and given jurisdiction and orders will survive to eternal life. Some may be condemned to hell for misusing their offices or falling into mortal sins. So we're all equal in that sense that we can rise in the hierarchy of God's blessings to becoming saints. And this is our work, each one in his own respective position in the church as it exists physically has a common calling to sanctity. And this is the nobility. This is the uh, development of the structure that will remain in eternity in the mansions that Christ is preparing for those who love him. So we belong to this royalty. Christ is the king represented by his visible representative on earth, the Pope, and all the other members of the hierarchy. You are the laity, also under them, but striving to the rising in the ranks of God's holiness in the mansions that will be assigned to us, and those who are lowest will become the highest, and those who are highest can become the lowest. So we have to keep this in mind. It's not a political thing. It's not a physical thing. It's a spiritual thing that works through the physical to the higher ranks of holiness and goodness that is your vocation in life. So, as in the Middle Ages, the poor people, the ignorant people, looked up to the aristocracy who were wealthy and talented and intelligent, knowledgeable, and they helped the poor to rise because they didn't have what these could give, and they in turn served them, and they served them with love. We think of the aristocracy as being cruel and overbearing, not so. When charity rules, then there is a benefit for all to rise together, each one helping the other. And in the kingdom of God, this should be the kind of charity and operation with faith and hope and all the other virtues operating to help one another. So there is no lower or higher, but we're not democratic either. We're not equal in the sense that we're all blended into the sameness, but we strive to rise in the order of God to the holiness and the perfection that the Holy Ghost will achieve with our cooperation through faith, hope, and charity to the aristocracy of the kingship of heaven. So your place is yet to be found. You are working for it now. Do so in the hierarchy, with the hierarchy, under the hierarchy, and maybe in spite of the hierarchy, but with that charity and that orientation to serve God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. And when the day comes for judgment, God will give you the crown that you have earned. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost.